These things are true. The world is dark, and we are alive. This season on My First Dungeon, we are delving deep into darkness in the tragic horror game Ten Candles. It is played by the light of ten tea candles. When only one candle remains, the game enters its final scene in which all the characters will meet their end. In this game, death is certain. All you can do is keep moving and try not to lose hope. I've been wanting to play this game for a very long time now, and pretty soon I'm going to get the chance, because I've got a familiar face joining me on this podcast, to be the game master for this season. You've heard him on the show before, playing Something is Wrong with the Chickens, as the gruff, third-eyed enforcer Peep the Duck, as well as playing Wander Home as Tipper the lovable Vole Moth Tender. But he is also a game designer himself of such games as Abominations and the aforementioned Something is Wrong with the Chickens. It is, of course, Elliot Davis. Elliot, welcome back to the show. Hey, Brian. Good to be back. Excited to get tragic and spooky. I cannot wait to see you run this game. I know you've played a lot of different games before and you've run a lot of different games, but this is a game you've never gotten a chance to run, right? Yeah, it's funny. So I uh, we've talked about before, I've been collecting TTRPGs for a couple of years and this was, if not the first, then like the second physical TTRPG book I ever bought. Um, and it's been on my shelf and it's been one of those things that like every time Halloween rolls around, I'm like, gotta play this. And now I'm I'm stoked that we're finally getting to do it. I really can't wait. The first time I read it, it really did blow my mind, like the mechanics and the way the mechanics really like feed into the setting and the world. And it like really excited me. Like when I was thinking about designing games, I was thinking in the way that this game was kind of setting it up, like everything fed into the feel of the game. Mm. And it's also been one of those games I've been a little bit scared to play just because I've never really done horror. I've definitely never done Same. tragedy. And I think I've only killed like one character ever. So, you know, maybe this is a good game to do to like, you know, finally <laughs> get that out of your system. Rip the bandaid off. Yeah, exactly. Elliot, before before we dive in, what are your biggest worries or like concerns or what, what are you most worried about going into this game? That, because it is pretty different from a lot of other games. Yeah, I mean, I think it has some of that, you know, we some of the stuff that we talked about with playing a GMless game on the Wander Home season where it's like making sure to give players the opportunity to to really contribute to the story in not just their characters, but like, well, focused around their characters, but not just in like the I'm playing this character kind of way, but I'm also introducing stakes for this character. So making sure to give people space with that. I'm a little nervous about being able to properly create an atmosphere of terror i tend not i'm not like a a super intimidating person i don't have like a a spooky voice or anything and i tend to lean towards like you know comedy or drama with um ttrpgs that i run so it'll be a little bit outside of my comfort zone tonally but i think i'm excited to try it i'm excited to see how you do but as always on this show i want to set you up for success with the very best tools that we can provide you and there is no better tool there's no better person to talk to than the creator of 10 Candles himself, Mr. Stephen Dewey. Stephen, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. I am a tool. It's okay. You can call me that. <laughs> As I was saying it, I realized like this isn't going to go well. You got to back up. You got to back up. <laughs> but we're very excited to have you. I have read this game cover to cover like multiple times. It's been a real inspiration when I'm like designing my own games, when I'm thinking about game design. But it has been one of those games I've been just like a little bit scared to play. <laughs> for for all good reasons just because it's outside of my comfort zone and i'm really excited to dive into it and i will say that like reading that book cover to cover because it's the when the first thing i did when i got it it's like reading it it gave me that feeling of reading like a goosebumps book as a kid where you're kind of like staying up late and you're like you're yeah. kind of scared <laughs> it reads the like i mean a, a credit to your writing it has that just reading it as a game feels like you're reading sort of a horror novel. It has the the vibes and the the uh, terror kind of throughout. And yeah, it's really, really a fun read. Being someone who's read a lot 
of tabletop RPG rulebooks before. I really try to make an extra effort to make my books fun to read through, even because I also know that I certainly have a ton of rulebooks on my shelf that I've never actually had a chance to play before. So at least you will feel like maybe you got your money's worth because you had a good <laughs> read, even if you never get it to the table. Absolutely. Mission accomplished. Thank you. <laughs> Steven, to start out with, I want to talk about a little bit about the kind of genesis of this game and some of the some of the specific like dice mechanics of this game. And one of the things I take away from this is that all of the mechanics of the game really inform the tone of the game. Like there's always kind of this oppressive action of, you know, the dice pool keeps shrinking, the candles keep going out, you're burning away certain traits. Where did the mechanics and the inspirations for this game first come from? And like, what was your first kind of like touchstone moment? You're like, oh, this is the game. Well, the the game uh, was lar- the inspiration for the game, I guess I should say, was largely born out of my background with gaming and some of the experiences that I've had. So I grew up with Dungeons and Dragons. That was the game that I played a lot. But I also kind of independently from Dungeons and Dragons was heavily involved in live action role playing. When I was in high school, I got into the general LARP scene in my community. I was also really big into theater. So a lot of what informed my tabletop role playing at the time was immersion, because that is something that you have in improvisational theater, in live action role playing that it's really hard to get, say, around a Dungeons and Dragons table. But whenever I was running those games, I really tried to build immersion into the game. If we're going into a spooky dungeon, I'm going to dim the lights. I'm going to light some candles. I'm going to try to get my players as immersed as possible. That commitment to immersion carried me through into my college years, where I got more involved in after being introduced to indie games and story games and some of the other things that were out there. And one game in particular I was trying out at the time, a game called Polaris by Ben Lehman, um, which is all about chivalric knights at the North Pole slowly succumbing to madness and corruption. When I wanted to run that for a group It's a very ritual game. It has these key ritual phrases. There's a lot of inspiration I pulled from that game about what I wanted Ten Candles to be. I wanted to have some ritual that began and ended the session. And what that ritual happened to be was lighting a candle that would burn throughout the entirety of the session. And we would blow it out when the session was done as just this repeatable ritual that we could that would let us know now it is time to play. Now is the time where we're going to sink into these characters and tell stories for a few hours. And then as part of our debrief, we blow that candle out and we're back in the real world. I really wanted to build that immersion. So when I was involved with all these Indian story games, that particular thing that I built into a game of Polaris came back at me. And I thought that that was such an interesting ritual. I thought, you know, what if... A game lasted the length of a candle. What if that was, in fact, the point of the game or something central to the game? And that spark of an idea unraveled into what 10 Candles is today. I always love seeing the genesis of these, like the etymology of games. It's always very cool to see. Whenever I look at something I make, I know all the pieces and I'm like, oh, I just stole this from this. And I, I see a collage. When I see someone else's work, I see a fully formed thing. And it's not until you see the component pieces that you realize, oh no, this is inspired from this, this is inspired from this. It kind of reaffirms for me like, oh yeah, everyone draws inspiration. Like no one is just like coming up with things whole cloth. There's always bits and pieces that we're grabbing from different areas and allowing them to inspire us in our games. It it was an interesting part of the design process for sure because I didn't even really necessarily actively think about pulling ideas from these games when I'm in the was in the heat of designing the game originally I wasn't saying oh and I'm getting an idea from here and from here I was just awash in these ideas that other people had that were brilliant 
And I took a lot of my own ideas and a lot of inspiration from other games that I didn't even realize until after the fact um, to build 10 candles. But slowly, as people ask me, you know, where did this component come from? Where did this component come from? I've had to kind of go back and unravel where that those inspirations were from. And that has become even more bizarre. You know, now that I've kind of gotten a lock on where my game came from, it's very, very strange to me to see where now 10 Candles is going, where some pieces from 10 Candles have been pulled. And I can now see in this game, in that game, in these other games, it's, you know, understandable. Oh, I'm standing on the backs of these giants in the indie design community and then seeing other games be incredibly successful that I can see where the DNA from 10 Candles has been pulled. It's absolutely wild to see it's so unexpected like that that's the biggest it's really right cool <laughs> it's like people playing your game people making new games out of your game it's like right it's both yeah it's things. it's really fun to see before we dive into kind of prepping the game can you real quick give us a a short primer on how the dice pool works in this game and also kind of the aspect of the traits and brinks uh, that make up essentially the character sheet for this game Sure, I will try to keep it short. There's a lot of <laughs> little finicky pieces of the rules that I may skip over in the interest of brevity. But the basic summary is that gameplay revolves around this pool of 10 six-sided dice. There are a couple more dice set off to the side that may come in use later, uh, but the main uh, mechanics function around the, these 10 dice. Whenever the players need to make a conflict roll, they will take that communal pool of dice and they'll roll it. And they are trying to get at least one six in that pool of six-sided dice. They have a lot of dice at the start, it's very likely that they'll get at least one six. So at the very beginning of the game, it's very common for players to succeed. In addition, if they roll more sixes with their pool than the GM rolls, they also get to narrate the outcome of that conflict. So let's say they're searching for supplies. The GM calls for a conflict for whatever player is searching. They succeed. They get a six. The GM doesn't get any sixes because at the start of the game, they don't have any dice to roll. So the players will get to say, okay, here's what I find. And they narrate out what they're able to find with their supply run. However, this pool does get smaller. Any ones that they roll get removed from the pool for the rest of the scene. So that die pool being communal will affect everyone and everyone's die pool gets smaller and smaller and smaller. At some point, eventually, their luck will run out. They'll make a roll that doesn't have a six in it. Uh, at this point, they can try to rearrange that die pool a little bit with their traits and moments and other mechanics, which I'll explain a little bit. But eventually, they will have a roll with no sixes. At that point, the scene has ended. Uh, the players will blow out one of the candles and they will move to the next part of the game. Uh, at that point, with the next scene, once they get to the next scene, the die pool will refill, but now only up to the number of lit candles. So the first time this happens, now the players have a pool of nine dice and the GM gets their first die. So whenever the players roll their dice, the GM will also roll. And if they tie or beat the players with their one die, uh, they get to narrate the outcome of the conflict instead. So it's still really only the players that are rolling conflict dice. There's no mechanic where the monsters are rolling dice or anything like that. The players will always roll. They'll always succeed if they get a six. And whoever gets more sixes will narrate the outcome. So as you might kind of be able to put together, the way that this tends to work is that at the beginning of the game, the players have all of the control, both narratively and in the story. They're succeeding at everything they want to do. It's a, it takes a long time before something inevitably fails and the GM gets to narrate some dark and mysterious thing before going on to the next scene. But as the game goes on, those scenes get shorter and shorter because it's more likely and more likely the players will fail quickly. And even the narrative control over the story slowly slips over into the hands of the GM. 
until at the end of the game, it's really the players who are failing almost every role and the GM who's getting to narrate the consequences of each of those roles whenever they happen, even when the players succeed. Now, there are a few tools that players have to work with their character sheet, so to speak, which is a stack of index cards with traits, a moment, and a brink on them. Traits, a virtue and a vice, those are a negative and positive aspect of your character. So maybe your virtue is that you're lucky. Maybe your vice is that you're terrified. Whenever those come up and are able to be used, they function mechanically the same way. You're going to narratively introduce this trait to the scene in some way. And as a result, you'll get to take all of the ones that you've just rolled and re-roll them. So that might be to save you from a failed roll, or maybe it was a successful roll and you just want, don't want to lose all these ones. Either way, once you use one of your traits, you literally burn it on the candles and watch that part of your character burn away in order to gain the benefits, revealing whatever is the next card on your pile that you could then use. Maybe it's your other trait, maybe it's your moment. Your moment, which is also defined during character creation, this is a scene that you've sort of pre-written or a moment in the game, in the story, that you've pre-written as a potential opportunity for your character to find hope amidst all of the madness and horror that's going on around them. So it might be something like, I will find hope when I find my sister, or I will find hope when one of the monsters lies dead at my feet. When that comes up and is available on your stack, at that point, you can try to live that moment. And everyone around the table is sort of encouraged to help lead the story towards someone's moment once it's ready to go so they can have that sort of moment in the spotlight. That functions like any other conflict role. When, you're, when you have the chance to live your moment, you'll roll your dice. If you are successful you will gain one of those bonus dice I mentioned before. That's your hope die. And that die can never be lost, even on rolls of ones. You will be able to add that to the die pool whenever your character is rolling, and it can be a success on a five or a six. So it's much more powerful than your normal dice. It's great to have. But if you fail that roll, not only does the scene end because you failed a roll, but you no longer have an opportunity to live that moment successfully. Your hope has been dashed. The last component is the brink, which is sort of like a hidden trait. It's not necessarily who your character is. It's more what they're capable of when pushed to the brink. This is some darker, hidden secret, maybe a weakness or something that your character might succumb to, some dark side of them that they're keeping hidden from most of the rest of the characters. I say most because it is in fact one of your fellow characters, one of your fellow players that writes your brink for you, meaning that their character knows about the deeper, darker side that your character keeps hidden. It's up to them if they want to tell the rest of the group or not, but eventually when everything else has been burned away and all you have is your brink, you can use that on conflict rolls as well. It actually lets you re-roll your entire die pool. And as long as you're successful uh, on that re-roll, you can keep your brink as long as it's paying off. You know, you don't really succumb to, oh, God, what am I doing? What have I become? You're like, heck, yes, this is working for me. I'm going to keep doing it, <laughs> even if maybe that's doing harm to others or, or betraying them. But the second you fail, you will lose that brink. You'll lose any hope dice that you've collected and you'll darken a candle to move on to the next scene. I love these mechanics so much. I love the aspect of Same. like. You can feel because like, in in D D or in like a D twenty based system or in most base most systems, there's a staticness to it. You always know what you're rolling, and you always have the same odds more or less. We're gonna have those first couple rolls. We're gonna be like, oh, this is great. We're like running over everything. Like we're doing everything we want, and it's gonna slowly yeah. dawn on us midway through. Like, oh no, and you it, you know it really helps to emphasize that feeling of inevitability that this game is kind of trying to get to. Elliot, you and I in our last season just played Wander Home, and Jay. Jay Dragon, the uh, creator of Wonder Home, had mentioned to us that 
there's an aspect of character creation in that game where you have to ask questions to your left and right players to your left and right kind of answer questions about your character. And I really like the traits and brinks being given to you by other people. It really like creates a party or creates a group very quickly because you're kind of building mm-hmm. together rather than something that is more like D and D or kids on bikes where you're, you know, building on your own kind of, you know, building collaboratively, but you're not giving something to other people. Right. And it feels like it almost puts like a player potentially off balance a little. Like if you're like getting these things given to you and that feels very mm-hmm. horror to me where it's like in a TTRPG where you're building your character on your own, you can like decide exactly who that person wants to be. But like when it's like a mix, a mishmash of like some other people's thoughts, there's like a little bit of like, this is who you are. And like, this is who you're getting through this as. And, and I think that's cool as well. That's very much intentional, right? There's a lot of uh, every aspect of the game, every rule of the game, at least in some small way, for the most part, is designed to mesh really well with the themes of the game as well. Because all of the rules, all of the mechanics, I want to feed into that those feelings of stress and anxiety, those feelings of not quite being able to stabilize yourself. Things are happening quickly and in a way that you could not plan for. And that's also very intentional as well. I don't want people coming to the table with ideas of the characters they're going to play. It's very intentionally a no prep game. So to allow people to like, Hey, don't bring any expectations with you. You're not even going to be able to imagine what kind of character you're going to play until we're all picking that out together. And Elliot, you have some experience with, you know, zero prep games, partially because you've written one. Mm. What are your concerns with getting the game like, off the ground Uh, because you're coming in you know essentially blank one of the things you said Stephen, which is really interesting is this idea of ritual when it comes to this game and ritual is like a really big part of this game and it sort of feels like it's like as soon as you start setting up you're playing um Mm -hmm. and and that's something that like i haven't really had an experience doing is like is like leaning into the ritualistic nature of like play and like and you know, committing right off the bat. Usually like when you're getting set up for a one shot, there's like a period of time where you're like, okay, we're building characters and we're chatting and maybe we're snacking or something. But this is very much like, I want to make sure that I, like we sit down and it's like, okay, as soon as we start lighting these candles, like the tone is set. So yeah, a little, little nervous about making sure that I establish that like uh, properly for folks. One of the things that you just identified that helps with that is the candles because as you're going through character creation, it instructs the GM to begin lighting candles at certain intervals of the character creation setup. And that's for a couple reasons. One is so that the candles are lit a little bit staggered. So if you get really identical candles there, not all going to go out at exactly the same time. <laughs> it, it, it lends a little bit more like, which candles did we light first? You know, it's not really, you're not really certain. But also once those candles are lit, this is one of the things about the game I really enjoy and that it's hard to find with a lot of other games. People are locked in. It's like, mm. you know, we, we, don't, we aren't taking a food break to go get dinner. The candles are burning like they're mm-hmm. not going to stop. We are locked in for the next, you know, few hours here. If people are stepping away from the table, it better be quick because the candles aren't going to wait for you. Uh, and that sense of the fragility of the game session, that sense of a very real timer uh, before the session ends, it locks people in in a way that I don't think a lot of the time even they're expecting mm. until they're they're there around the table. Uh, they, it's really hard, especially, you know, if you play in person with the lights off, that immersion, is, you can't escape it. It's really tricky to get away from. And I love uh, what you were just saying about the fragility. I love that. I think at some point you say it explicitly in the text that if like somebody bumps a candle and it gets knocked off or like waves their hand like that ends a scene, even if Mm -hmm. it was like totally accidental, (laughs) which which I love is so it's so like sinister. Um, Do you have any like tips on so we're playing in person, I believe, right, Brian? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Gotta play this in person beyond the just like uh, obviously the candles and the lighting do a lot. Is there anything else? for like when you first get to the table that you think like helps get people in the mood and in the right headspace. 
In terms of setting the scene, I, I think it really gets down to just helping your players understand the gameplay experience that they're about to embark on and that they will have a much better time if they help you make the session what it can be. And that can be things like making sure everyone gets to the bathroom first, everyone's got snacks if they need them, cell phones are off or put away. You know, it's like we're go we're all going to a horror movie together. Let's follow kind of the same rules as if we were going to a movie together because there's not going to be a lot of opportunity as we go to get up and walk away. Now, obviously, that's not always possible with every player, but whenever you can minimize distractions, things like that, if you can make sure that your the room you're playing in can get as dark as possible once you shut the lights off, things like that will all help. Um, but something that I also like to do is try to do as much setup on behalf of the players ahead of time. You know, take take that on as the GM to make sure all of the supplies are there. The candles are set up, the index cards are dealt out, the, you know, Sharpies or pens or whatever. Everyone's got everything they need so you can just dive right into character creation and not feel like you need to stop or pause or look anything up. The more comfortable you are kicking the game off, the better, because for the GM, you, you, the most work you're going to do is right at the beginning with that setup and guiding them through character creation and the introduction to the very first scene. And then you're just going to let your players have the reins for several hours. And then at the very end of the game, you will also be called upon to absolutely nail the ending and bring all those threads together. But your players have given you so much to work with at that point, it's a lot easier than it sounds. But those are sort of the two big moments for the GM to do their work. So being as prepared as you can for them is really helpful and, and will help your table sort of become committed and invested because you are. I love that uh, that analogy of uh let's pretend we're like sitting down at a horror movie because like everybody, you know, that like instantly without being like, turn your phones off, do this, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. It like gives everybody the right headspace. It's like, yeah, we're going to sit down for like a two, two and a half hour movie. Yeah, exactly. I just want to have one more question on character creation. For character creation, what are some of your tips that you would give to players when they're like kind of writing out traits and brinks, especially for other people? to set them up for success and so that they are putting themselves in a position to have the most fun and the most like versatile characters as possible. So for traits and your brink, I would say keep it vague. Uh, there is no need in this game to get into real big specifics or to call out a very, very specific thing. You want it to be kind of vague so that players can interpret it mid-game in a lot of ways because you never want... The, the worst sort of situation is when a player is like, I'm stuck on this trait, but I can't think of a way to use it. Good traits should be basically usable in any encounter or conflict uh, and not be something so specific like, you know, a virtue, for example, like scientist. That might be a little too specific. There are not, you know, there are specific conflicts or things that come up that are uh, would be tricky to do otherwise with that trait. Whereas if your trait was just intelligent or studied or educated, that might be that's it's a lot more vague. Players can play around with it a lot more. So don't get too specific with traits and brinks. They should allow themselves to, you know, intertwine with a lot of different situations for moments. I always recommend, you know, your moment should be something where when it happens in the story can be really flexible. So, for example, if it's uh, I will find hope when we reach the windmill, as an example, that is a very specific moment that's a very specific place and as soon as you reach it you're going to be thinking this is the time for my moment the problem is the way the rules work is that you can't actually live your moment unless it's 
active card on top of your character sheet, which might mean you have to get through one or two virtues or vices first. So if you've gotten through it and you've got, you know, if you haven't gotten through those and you get to the windmill, you're going to be frustrated because you're like, this should be my moment, but I've got these other cards in the way. Try to make it a moment that could slot in anywhere that that can wait. That's not going to be dependent on you getting to a specific place or accomplishing a very specific plot central thing uh, that definitely needs to happen because that story point may have come and gone or might be miles away when your moment becomes active. If you keep it a little bit more vague, a little bit more personal to your character and not like specific to your group's travel and accomplishments, you're going to be much better off slotting that in whenever it comes up in the story. And then you can sort of organically go with it. Um, So with both of those, it really comes down to just don't make it so specific and so complicated that it'll be hard to put into the game when you want to. You want to give other players and yourself the you know, to help yourselves uh, be able to play those cool moments of your character more often, because a lot of the time when they're really specific, it can cause players to not be able to go through their cards and then they end the game kind of bummed out that they didn't have a chance to get to their brink. So whenever we can sort of work together to avoid that, all the better. And it seems like something that you said in there that felt like a through line of of trappings is setting seems to be a trapping like if you're if you're choosing a specific setting that seems like that's a that's a big one yeah i mean so i i do recommend you don't go in with nothing i do recommend you go in with uh, one of the modules either from the back of the book or a module that you've written up it's a just enough of a jumping on a jumping off point to give your player something to latch on to but it's very vague and leaves open a lot of interpretation so an example would be if you pick the you know if you write up a module i think there's a module even in the book where you're trying to get to an air like the last airplane at an airport before it takes off and if you moment is I'll find hope when we get to the airplane that's really tricky because it means the rest of the party has to hold off on getting to the airplane until your moment comes up or if they just go ahead and get there anyway now we've got to make another airplane somewhere in the story (laughs) Uh, but you know it might be something as simple as I'll find hope when I find my boarding pass or Mm. when I you know find something a previous passenger left behind all of that's way more you know broad uh, Mm -hmm. and will still allow you to have a cool moment but not one that kind of tangles with the main thrust of plot as scenes are running I think Elliot, uh, I feel like this is an, an area where you're going to know what you're doing. Like a scene where mm. in a game, you've done this before. Once a scene ends, and we go to a new scene. There is another ritual in this game that is establishing the truths. Stephen, can you real quick give us a primer on what that kind of between scenes ritual is? Yeah, so the between scenes ritual of establishing truths, it's to... It's inspired by the idea of watching these characters in a movie. You know, a lot of times when we sit down and we play role-playing games, quite a bit of that can be we're just sort of constantly following these characters from the moment they wake up in the morning to the moment they go to bed. And as cinema has shown us, if we want to pack a full story into a few hours, we can't really do that. We need to jump around to the parts that are exciting and interesting and fun. Um, The parts that the audience cares about, or in this case, the players. So establishing truths is there for a couple potential. It can be used in a couple potential ways, but really it's meant to allow the story to jump forward to wherever the players are the most excited about seeing what whatever they're most excited about playing. So how this uh, process works and the first time it occurs is after the first scene when you've darkened a candle. So there's nine candles left. The ritual goes as such. The game master will say, these things are true. The world is dark. And then one by one around the table, starting with the player who just failed the role, they will all get to establish something that is now true. It can be about themselves, about the world. It can be about where the story is, where the camera is. 
So for example, if they want to move the action forward or move the scene forward, maybe in the previous scene, they were on their way to a hospital to scavenge some supplies. The first truth could be, we've reached the hospital. Um, they could establish something like, my character has found a bottle of painkillers, or there is power in the hospital, or there isn't power in the hospital. Players can establish truths that may help themselves, help the team, you know, good luck, happy things for the adventurers. Or, and I, I see this quite often, especially with repeat groups who kind of get that uh, they're also GMing this game a little bit, they can establish things that might harm the party or might be bad omens. They don't always have to be good things or positive things. They could say a storm outside has started or there's something waiting for us in the surgery suite. You know, and just leave those things vague and undefined, whatever they want to do. And we'll go around the table establishing nine total truths because there's nine lit candles. The final truth that is established is always the same truth. And it's always established by all of the players in unison, which is, and we are alive. So as each scene passes, you're going to be establishing fewer and fewer truths. Um, the scenes will not be moving as dramatically forward. Um, another thing that a scene might or an establishing truths phase might be used for is to play out an action sequence in bullet time. I've seen this done as well. So if right before the scene ends, there's a monster attack, you could use the establishing truth to just jump forward and say, we've slain the monster. But you could also establish truths like, I swing out with a knife at the monster and cut it. And then the next person establishes a truth of like, I unload my clip into it, but the bullets just bounce off. And then the next person established, and you can kind of play out the action sequence in those scenes as well. Really, whatever the players want to do. They have a lot of control here, although the GM also is included in that circle and does get to establish truths as well. Oftentimes negative ones, but if the players are doing a really good job of building up their own enemies, sometimes helpful ones. Again, totally up to them to sort of collaboratively advance this to the next scene. So as the game goes on, the jumps between scenes will be less and less dramatic. And especially as you get down to the last few scenes, sometimes it's just establishing a quick change, one or two very small things, sometimes thematic things, because you really don't have enough truths to move the story forward. So mm -hmm. the last scenes all kind of blend into each other um, until you get to the final scene, one scene left, which means that the GM establishes these things are true, the world is dark, and the players establish and we are alive because that's the only truth they get to narrate. Mm. Uh, eventually, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get into the end of the game in a little bit, but this, what the establishing truth scene uh, transition allows you to do is it gives the power to the players to jump ahead to what they're excited about. It kind of gives them the reins to be like, hey, if we don't want to role play out this long journey to the hospital, we can just jump to the hospital. Or if someone has an idea for something maybe that's going to be in the way, they might say, we've reached a bridge on the way to the hospital. Okay, now we're going to be playing at this bridge. And you can't, no one else could say, oh, and now we've reached the hospital, right? You can't ca contradict someone's truth. But it does allow the players to collaboratively just jump things forward to what they're excited to do, what they want to see next. And that's our scene cut in the movie. Now we're in this new place. Now we're exploring something new. We have new potential dangers. There's new things that are true about the world that we've learned in like, establishing shots or cut scenes or whatever that we as the audience know, maybe even that the players or that the characters don't, but that they're going to find out about soon. Knowing our group, I really think that a lot of the uh, truths are going to be just slowly making things worse and worse for ourselves. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, in which I think will be very fun. It'll be a, a, a masochistic bunch. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and to that point, I think that you know, Brian, I have I have the utmost confidence in the group of folks that you'll bring together that will like be on board and will 
take to these mechanics. But Stephen, I'm curious if you've run into like when you're running this game, do you ever run into a snag where like a player just like isn't getting a mechanic, like doesn't quite like or maybe uses it incorrectly and like does it like throw off the rhythm or anything? Have you ever run into any sort of issues like that? And how would you recommend it? I, I can't really imagine it happening, like I said, because it's good people, but it's like the the uh, anxiety thought. Yeah, I mean, for sure, this can happen, especially with people who may not fully have a lot of experience with games that have improv elements or who don't really have a lot of experience with storytelling games or collaborative storytelling. There can absolutely be some bumps in the road. The The way that I really recommend Dealing with this, a lot of it is preventative. A lot of it is having a conversation before the game ever starts and really making it clear. I cannot stress this enough that you must tell your players how this game ends with all of their deaths. It is so critical that they know because this game does put a tremendous amount of narrative power and control into the hands of the players. The only way that that works in this game and works really well is because it will always end the same way. You know, if you, yeah, you go looking for supplies and yeah, you can narrate. And if you want to find an RPG, you can do that. Like if that's what you say you find in this army base, you can just have that. But it's important that you know that in this game, it's much less likely that you're going to be using that RPG to shoot at one of the monsters and more likely that you're going to shoot it at your friend's helicopter because they left without you. Like, that's what you kind of have to get across. Like, you are not going to win this game with big air quotes in the traditional sense. The way that we all succeed tonight, the only way we succeed is if we collaboratively work together to tell a really cool story. Mm. And that level of buy-in is critical for this game. Uh, So occasionally reminding players about that, like, hey, you can do this. Just remember how this ends sometimes they just need like a little reminder but i i continue to see whenever i sit down and play this game with people even people who don't have a lot of experience with this kind of game they do get it about halfway through the game They, they start to okay i understand how this ends i'm beginning to pick up on it um sometimes it takes a playthrough for someone to really sort of crack into what the game is about and what they're allowed to do and how they're allowed to play in it. Um, But just having patience with them and sort of having that upfront conversation is really important. The eighties are over and you're not kids anymore. Now is a much darker time. Something happened to you and you got touched by the weird and it made you wild and it made you Powerful. This is the world of The Lost Bay, a suburban gothic RPG. A fever dream set in 1990X and inspired in equal parts by dark fantasy, horror classics, and the 90s indie culture. After years of development and thanks to the feedback and support of a community of early enthusiasts, The Lost Bay is coming to Kickstarter. Featuring a full rulebook and complete setting designed by Eco, kick-ass art by Evangeline Gallagher, killer maps by Strega Wolf Vandenberg, and six additional modules by some of the coolest designers in the indie scene. So go to thelostbayrpg.com to be notified on launch. That's thelostbayrpg.com. One thing that I always want to be considerate of is like people's comfort levels and like introducing mm-hmm. safety tools, especially if it's with a, a, a table that I haven't played with regularly. Are there any particular safety tools you've found work well with this game or like or how do you balance something that's supposed to be tragic and terrifying and like gruesome with with like the proper use of safety tools? I I am a big 
big proponent of safety tools, not just in horror games, but in any game you sit down to play. And I can explain why. Um, some of the, the safety tools I usually go to, I go to lines and veils where you can sort of pre-negotiate what topics are off limit. I like to use an X card so that people have that live active. They can point at it, reference it, poke it and be like, hey, this topic is off limits for me. Let's do a quick cut and reassign. There's also a really great uh, safety tool called Script Change by Bo Sheldon that I am particularly fond of. It uses like a VCR style analog where you can pause the action, fast forward, slow it down, like a lot of that imagery that you might get on just a VCR remote, uh, but that you can use to kind of be the directors of your own gameplay when it's needed. Um, I think that there is a, you know, a, a huge fundamental misunderstanding that a lot of people who are against safety tools or don't use them have, which is that it's some kind of censorship or it's not going to allow us to really get into the topics that we want or it's going to, you know, potentially block the kind of story or gameplay that's like critical for this kind of game or whatever. In my opinion, it is deeply the exact opposite of that, mm. because when you have safety tools and people are bought into those safety tools, they understand them, they're willing to use them, they're going to respect the use of them, and everyone sort of has that social contract, it lets you go way harder than you ever would feel comfortable doing normally, because you've pre-negotiated, you know that you can push you can go into these, you know, darker sort of moments or more mature themes because you know that everyone around the table has this out if they need it. Mm -hmm. You know, we we all pre-negotiated that this safety net is here. So we're allowed to try the, you know, tricks or the, you know, whatever that are way more dangerous because we know that we're safe. We know that if anyone, if for any reason, needs to tap out or X card or whatever, that those tools are in place. So for games like horror games, I think it's so important to have safety tools because it allows you to push without needing to like hold yourself back because you're not sure if you're gonna cross a line. With these tools, People can let you know it's built into the rule system that they will let you know. So you can kind of feel more comfortable just going for it. And a lot of more often than not, I tend to find that groups that I've played with, as long as we have those down, they're a lot more comfortable, you know, going outside of their normal traditional RPG comfort zone because they know if things ever cross a line, they have that ripcord, they have that safety net. That's great. And I, and I hadn't heard of, the script change system so that's i'd definitely check that out but i, I, lo I love the x card and lines and veils those are i love those systems and for anyone who may not be familiar with those systems i'm going to put all those links in the description so please check them out they're all fantastic systems uh, to keep your table like safe and everyone having a good time yeah difference between scared and uncomfortable i feel like is a, is a yes a good one. yeah <laughs> very very important difference I want to move into talking about how this game ends sure we've one candle left we're in that final scene. We know how this game ends. Everyone dies. How do you make that satisfying while also allowing the possibility of hope? Because part of this game is like you're trying to hold on to hope as long as you can. But there is an inevitability to the game. We know where it's going. What do you find are the best ways to continue to foster that element of hope and allow people to enjoy those final moments as much as possible even though they know where the game is ending things shift a little at the end i think that while a big theme a big theme of 10 candles is hope and it's specifically it commands you in the rule book you know even though we know what will happen to these characters in order to play this game to the hilt in the way that in a way that will be really satisfying for you as participants is to maintain that hope that they will survive, that they will thrive, that they will accomplish great things, even though we as players know they won't. Uh, and I think at some point around the end of the game, that hope 
sort of transitions from the characters having hope to the players having hope. Because obviously, these characters are going to die. These characters are in, despite the hope that they hold, a hopeless situation. Uh, but as we shepherd them towards that inevitable conclusion, we are the ones that sort of take that hope and take on that weight for them to give them as fitting and dramatic and interesting an ending as we can to do their stories justice. Um, and a lot of that sinks into the final scene of the game. Uh, and before I get into the mechanics of that, this is actually kind of a good time to talk about Elliot. One of the uh, issues or concerns that you'd expressed at the very beginning of our conversation today, which was, you know, I'm not necessarily a spooky GM. I don't have a scary voice. How do I foster fear around the table? And one of the things that I've, I really tried hard to do with this game, and I think has been done successfully, is this idea of the rule system of Ten Candles doing so much of the heavy lifting for you, right? Because I, you know, I have played in horror RPGs before, you know, horror RPGs, like playing a, a super scary dungeon in Dungeons and Dragons, for example. So many of those games, they the fear of it, the how how much you're invested, it lives or it dies on if the GM can be scary or not, right? And there's that always that feeling of if I'm not scary, they're not going to be scared. But what I've tried to do is build a system here where the arcs and the, the rises and the falls and the way the dice pools grow and shrink over time and the way that control of the story slowly slips over the GM, um, all the rituals that are baked in, all of these, you know, hard mechanical rules are going to do a lot of that work for you into building out the shape of what a horror story should look and feel like just from a mechanical perspective. So a lot of what I've, I've heard from a lot of people is that this is a great game to run. If you've never really had a lot of experience running games before or horror games before, because the rules do a lot of the work. All you have to do is drape some, you know, anything you put on top of it. That's a little spooky. That's a little terrifying. That's, you know, grotesque. Anything you add will just be that fantastic customization and icing on the cake. And you do not need to worry because the rules will guide you home. They will help you do this. They will support you um, with, regardless of what story you want to tell. And a lot of that comes down to the overarching arc of this game, which is, you know, how the game begins and how the game ends, um, which is with a recording. So at the very beginning of the game, the very first words that the players say as their characters is this last recording, this final recording. It's the very quintessential horror movie moment of leaving that recording. You know, I don't know if anyone's going to hear this, but this is my name and here's where I'm going. Right. That last recording just out to the world. That is how we throw you into the game. You just have to make this recording. We're passing a recorder around the table. You don't have a lot of time to think about it. You're going to give your character a voice now. And then we're going to dive into the first scene. And everything that you said in that recording becomes so critical and core to the character that you play over the next couple of hours. And what we have in that final scene is one candle left lit. Everyone has access to one die, maybe two if they've got their hope die still. And in that scene, rather than uh, the scene ending, if you have failed to roll a success, your character dies. And everyone knows that you introduce the rules of the final scene right when it begins. If you fail a conflict roll, your character will die. And now normally, if players fail a conflict role, the GM gets to narrate. But in this final scene, we give that over to the players to narrate their own death in a way that they think is a fitting and just end to their character until either all of the characters have died or the last candle has gone out all on its own, which brings the same conclusion. Uh, at that point, with all of the candles darkened and all of the characters having passed, 
we utter our final ritual phrase of these things are true. The world is dark. There is, of course, no response to this like there always has been because there are no more lit candles. And in that darkness, we play that recording from the start of the game. And we hear these fresh, excited young voices, the very first words these characters spoke from hours ago, replaying now in the darkness, um, quite often deeply relevant to the Mm. the last couple of hours, um, sometimes in profound and surprising ways uh, as we listen to that recording one last time and allow ourselves to sort of sit in the aftermath of that until we're ready to flip on the lights and debrief from the emotional experience that we've had over the past several hours. And it's meant to be emotional. It's meant to be evocative. It's meant to challenge people and rip your hearts out and hopefully give you the best night of your life, right? All of these (laughs) things are true about how that game ends, but it, it's, very specific in sort of the order of how these things happen because it it's closing the loop on these rituals. It's the other bookend at the end of the game, which is important because it helps give players that, you know, the Polaris darkening the candle at the end. Like, this is the end of our story. This is the end of the loop, the end of the ritual. Now we're going to be able to move forward from it because it's very enclosed. Um, and we we can set it aside and we can move forward. I mean, there's there's so much about this game that I love from just a design perspective. But that, I remember reading that last page of the rules book the first time I read through this book and just like having that like chills moment of like, Oh, that would hit so hard as a player. Like, oh, my God. I've run that for people who know what's coming. I've run it for people who don't know what's coming. And that's obviously a whole other level of emotional and intense. But even the people who kind of are ready for what the ending holds, it's always still so interesting to get that flashback to the beginning. Hmm. Um, it, It ties things together, I think, really nicely. I'm feeling better already. (laughs) (laughs) So Elliot, now that we're kind of, we've talked about the beginning of the game. We've talked about the middle of the game. We've talked about how this game has to end. Where are you feeling most confident and where are you least confident right now? I think that I'm feeling good about, I feel like I'm going to feel really good at like candle through like, well, can seven at the seven candle round. I feel like I still feel like I'm going to like uh, I'm going to need a couple rounds to feel like I'm really doing it and it's really going well. I guess I'm worried about those first couple rounds still a little bit. But then I feel like once we get into a rhythm, I'll be like totally on board. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm a little worried about being like referencing the rules and like getting them wrong. But I, I, I will probably read through them like one or two more times before then and write myself a little cheat sheet or something and, and it'll be fine. But I think one of the things that there's this this bit that you have in the book, Stephen, where you talk about them or uh, as the, mm-hmm. the which is the the monster of the or the unforeseen enemy of the game and dosing that out in little bits and creating that fear of the unseen is something that like, I really want to nail, you know, like where it's like, where it's like, we're not getting too scary too early. You know, I know that one of my concerns was not being scary enough, but also the other concern is just not balancing (laughs) it and like, not like building the proper, uh, the proper ramp up, which again, like you said, there's so much in the mechanics for that ramp up, which is, which is wonderful, but not being like, and you see a big monster in like, in like a round one or something. It's definitely good, I think, to to piece things out and let it come slowly. Pacing is a big thing that a lot of people are sort of concerned about this game or they have a little bit of trouble with. But in this game, the GM has a tremendous amount of power over the pacing uh, and they can really guide the game as they need to. If things are going a little too slowly, just throw more conflict rules at your players. If things are going a little bit too quickly, especially in the later scenes, you know, don't feel like you need to give as many conflicts. You can always choose whenever there's anything that has an unknown outcome, you can always throw a conflict at your players. It doesn't have to just be like the what you traditionally would think of when you think of a conflict. It can it's not just when you're, you know, firing a gun or doing surgery. It could also be when you're opening the 
uh, trunk of a car you just found or knocking on a door or just walking into a new room. You can have a player roll a conflict and then they can narrate what's in that room, what is in that trunk. In those first few scenes, do not feel bad about giving your players basically all that narration, letting Mm. them say what's behind the corner. You don't always need to do that's part of what makes it a zero prep game. You can really give the narrative control over to your players on anything that you don't have an answer for right away. And as you get later in the game and you want to cut down on conflicts, oh, they're opening a door. You can just describe what's inside. You can save those conflicts for when they really matter or when you really want to die roll to potentially project yourself to the next scene. So you have a lot of control over pacing and all of that. And that's just something good to keep in mind. Ultimately, though, I mean, even just some of the stuff we've talked in this conversation, I am feeling overall confident in in running my first 10 candle session and and first sort of real horror kind of game so yeah thank you Stephen, for all the advice it was super super helpful and just also fun to talk through this absolutely game. i'm really looking forward to playing i think it's gonna be so much fun Stephen, are there any last minute best practices things to avoid common pitfalls piece of advice that you want to leave elliot with If your players are having fun and talking or just, you know, chewing a scene, getting into intense conversations, don't feel like you need to throw something at them to move the action forward. They already know the candles are burning down. Just let those candles burn and let them talk. And when they're ready to move forward, they'll start looking to you to throw some kind of a wrench in the gears. But I have found the biggest piece of advice is just let your players be their characters, talk to each other, make plans. And then when they finally have everything settled and figured out, then you blow it up in their faces and it's always way more satisfying. (laughs) Um, Wait, I just had like a totally random paranoia thought. Have you ever had just like the last three candles burn out from like natural chance? It certainly can happen. Um, I, I will say that when I was first running this game, I had a lot of games end to candle outages. And nowadays when I run the game, I almost never do because I know how I know a lot better how to use conflicts to move the action forward and to move the scenes forward so that really most of the time now games are ending, you know, a little bit quicker just in time before the candles run out. So it it took me a while to master that pacing to really like know when to move things forward and when not to, that comes with practice, like with any game. Um, But apps, it is nothing to be scared of when candles go out. Sometimes the last two or three might blow out all of the sudden and, it's up to you to make some great narration for how things very suddenly and horribly end. Um, but that is part of the game. Sometimes just an errant wind in through the window or in my case, through one of my games, a wag of a dog's tail can just blow out <laughs> four or five candles just like that. And you have to adapt pretty quickly. That's awesome. And that is it for episode one of My First Dungeon, 10 Candles. A huge, big, massive thank you to Stephen Dewey for creating this incredibly cool game that I've been wanting to play for so long and for walking us through it on this podcast. Stephen, uh, anything you want to plug? Where can people find you online if they want to learn more about your games? Sure. So you can find me in one of three places. Well, one of four places. You can find my games for sale at cavalrygames.com or cavalry.games. I think that still works as a way to get to my site, but cavalrygames.com, you can find all my games for sale there. If you want to find me, you can find me at Shifty Ginger on Twitter, or you can find me on either Patreon or Twitch, patreon.com slash Stephen Dewey or twitch.tv slash Stephen Dewey. On Twitch, I uh, even do do some RPG design streams. So if you want to see how the sausage is made, you can follow me there and see me either working on current game projects or just playing games with my 
my friends. I occasionally post game design news or play tests and things like that on my Patreon. So all of those places are really great spots to find me and keep up to date on what I'm doing. And uh, Elliot, any anything you want to uh, promote right now? Where can people find you? First, I just want to say, Stephen, thank you so much for for all the advice. And it is uh, a privilege and an honor to speak with you. You were, like I said, one of the first games that I bought and um, have been a big inspiration uh, in design and such. Um, So really appreciate it. For me, I would plug that Something's Wrong with the Chickens now has a print run. You can get it in beautiful trifold brochure at our friends at Indie Press Revolution. So go check it out. They're a great company and uh, play a fun little game in, in brochure form. And if you want to listen to us play the game, you can check out two seasons ago. Something's Wrong with the Chickens. We do some crazy stuff at the Ohio State Fair. <laughs> Absolutely. And if you want to learn more about this show, you can find us wherever you find your podcasts. If you're listening to this, you already know where to find podcasts. Check us out. we got a lot of fun seasons. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at MyFirstDungeon. Join us next episode as Elliot will lead a group of players to their deaths. But don't worry, it's going to be fun. And remember, these things are true, the world is dark, and, and we, we are, are alive. alive. And if you're having fun, you're already doing it right. Bye-bye, everybody. Thanks, Fran. Thank you. If you're hearing this, that means you listen to every last second of this episode. And if you simply cannot wait until the next episode drops, you should head over to patreon.com slash myfirstdungeonpod and become a member of the Dice Pool. Flash! For just a few bucks a month, you'll get cast talkbacks, original games, and a full-length bonus actual play each and every month. As of the end of 2023, there's already over 20 hours of bonus audio, plus a whole bunch of other goodies to enjoy. So head on over to patreon.com slash myfirstdungeonpod and jump on into the dice pool. We'll see you there. Splash!